Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, King Gadarat of the East African Kingdom of Aksum invaded southern Arabia with mixed results. He managed to initially capture nearly all of the Kingdom of Himyar, but was forced out after his Arabian allies turned on him. Now, Gadarat is dead, and Aksumite influence in Arabia is now contained only to the lands of Najran in northern Yemen. Now that we're caught up, let's begin. Episode 16, Aksum's Greatest Defeat With Gadarat's death in 229 AD, rule in Aksum fell to a man named Atheba, likely one of Gadarat's sons. Unfortunately, however, throughout the next several decades, records about Aksum's kings are pretty scant. Starting with the rule of Adheba, and not broken until the rule of a king named Azana more than a hundred years later, Aksum experienced something of a dark age in terms of records of its kingship. Aksum's state resources were spent after Gadarat's vigorous pursuit of expansion, so the next several decades were a time of relatively thrifty and conservative rulers, the type of inglorious rule that doesn't demand lavish monuments. While Gadarat spent large sums on infrastructural and militaristic projects, his successors would try to preserve these gains, rather than spending resources in an effort to expand on them. Adheba inherited the unenviable position of trying to stabilize Gadarat's conquests in Arabia. Aksum's influence in Arabia was after a long series of wars with the kingdoms in Arabia, Aksumite's influence in the region was contained only to the area surrounding the city of Najran. Diplomatically, the kingdom was isolated. Of the three kingdoms that had previously been allied to Aksum during their war against the Himyarites, all of them were now hostile. The kingdom of Saba, wary of Aksumite ambition in Arabia, had changed sides during the war, taking up arms against Aksum and ruining what little trust remained between the two kingdoms. The kingdom of Hadramut, on the other hand, had earned Aksum's ire by continuing to pirate its ships during their alliance, culminating in Gadarat breaking the alliance and invading Hadramut in a punitive expedition. The last former ally, Kataban, had been conquered and turned into a subject kingdom of Hadramut, so now that Hadramut was an enemy of Aksum, so was Kataban. If Aksum couldn't find an Arabian ally soon, its isolated territory in Najran would surely fall. However, Adheba would soon manage to find an ally, albeit one in an unexpected place. As previously stated, Saba had changed sides during the war, siding with Himyar against the Aksumites. However, Saba and Himyar's alliance was always meant to be temporary. Sure, the looming threat of Aksumite expansion had brought these two kingdoms together, but now that Aksum had been defeated, now what? With nothing left to unite these two kingdoms as allies, their old rivalry blossomed once more, and war followed soon after. Sabaean armies swarmed through the lands of Himyar, besieging its cities and pillaging its countryside. The Himyarite army had been devastated from its long war with Aksum, so the king of Himyar knew that he didn't have the capacity to engage with his superior enemy alone. Instead, he made a desperate plea for aid to Himyar's old enemy, the Aksumites. Whether or not to answer this plea must have been a hard decision for Adheba. On the one hand, Himyar had so recently been the source of Aksum's problems. It was a pirate haven and served as Aksum's main enemy in the region. So many Aksumite soldiers had been killed on Himyarite spears. Heck, why shouldn't Aksum join on Saba's side and divide the flailing Himyarite kingdom in half between them? On the other hand, the Sabaean king had betrayed Aksum during their previous war. If Saba managed to annex Himyar, then the combined armies of the region would be impossible for Aksum to surmount. If Aksum wanted to ensure that it kept its Arabian territory, ensuring that Saba stayed weak was a non-starter. 
With this in mind, Arheba accepted the Himyarite king's request and declared war on Saba. To fight this war, Arheba sent his son, Gurma, to serve as his general in Arabia. Gurma was given only a motley force of Oxumite soldiers to fight this war, not nearly enough to actually put up a fight against Saba. So, upon landing in Arabia, Gurma began recruiting from the tribes of sea Arabs, or Tihama, that lived along the coast. The Tihama had been longtime enemies of both Saba and Himyar, so were happy to help Gurma execute his war against them. Unfortunately, many of the details of Gurma's ensuing campaign against the Sabaeans are lost. It seems, though, that the war got off to a good start. Gurma initially saw several victories in the first battles of the war, but with each of these victories, his men grew more tired, and supplies grew short. Meanwhile, to the south, Gurma's Himyarite allies were also finding success. Saba had been forced to send the majority of its army to fight the Aksumites, so the Himyarite army was able to besiege and capture the forts surrounding the Sabaean city of Sana'a. If they could seize this important city, Saba would be forced to surrender. It seemed that victory was near. However, Gurma's army, low on supplies and facing declining morale, was one night forced to make camp at a field called Akkad. Just as the Aksumite army had finished setting up its camp, Sabaean scouts spotted them. Soon, the main army of Saba stormed up to the Aksumite camp and met the tired and unprepared Aksumites in battle. The ensuing battle was close, as Gurma and his forces fought valiantly, but ultimately their low supplies and crippled morale forced the army to make a bloody retreat, harassed by Sabaean forces the whole way back to Najran. As Gurma tried to recover and organize a new army, the Sabaeans pillaged and sacked their way through the countryside of Aksumite Arabia. Recognizing that his victory was unlikely, Gurma decided to cut his losses and agreed to a peace treaty with the king of Saba. Hearing the news of their allies' defeat, Himyar also reluctantly signed for peace. The war saw no loss or gain of territory on either side, meaning that while Aksum had been defeated in battle, they had technically done what they sought out to do in this war by limiting Saba's expansion but they paid a hefty price in blood in order to achieve this stalemate. As we've seen, alliances in southern Arabia rarely last long. In 248, King Adhiba died, and two years later, the king of Himyar died as well. The new generation of kings that replaced them saw little value in maintaining the alliance between Aksum and Himyar. Saba's ambitions had been limited, so what was the point in maintaining this defensive alliance anymore? Gurma, who enjoyed good relations with the Himyarites, was still in Arabia when his father died. In his absence, Adheba's brother, Datwinas, took the opportunity to seize the throne. To avoid future conflict with his nephew, who could potentially harbor some resentment for having the throne seized in his absence, Datwinas adopted Gurma as a son, and declared him his new heir. The details of Datwinas's life are not especially well known, but what is clear is that, upon ascending to the throne, Datwinas wanted to completely reverse the policies of his brother, while his brother's foreign policy was cautious, conservative, and focused on preserving the balance of power in Arabia, Datwinas was a king who desired conquest. The kingdom of Himyar, which was reeling from its participation in two devastating wars, and in an unstable position after the death of its king, seemed like an appealing target for conquest. Under the orders of the king Datwinas, Aksumite ships flooded the Red Sea, as thousands of soldiers were shipped from Africa to Arabia. There, they merged with the remains of the army under Gurma's command. This newly revitalized army, the largest Arabia had ever seen, 
flooded into the land of Himyar like a holy deluge. The defenders of the Himyarite capital of Zafar, terrified of the sight of this massive Aksumite force, fled, giving up the city with minimal fighting. The rest of the Himyarite army, not yet mobilized and ill-prepared for war, quickly surrendered. Within less than a month of light fighting, the rest of Himyar had been brought under Aksumite occupation with little initial resistance. With reports of his victory, Datuinas proclaimed himself the king of Aksum, Himyar, and Saba, a bold declaration of his ambition to fully annex and integrate the entirety of southern Arabia into the Aksumite Empire. However, while this war with the Himyarites got off to an incredibly promising start, problems soon became apparent in this occupation. The young king of Himyar, Karib al-Aifa, remained at large. With a ragtag army of loyal supporters, he fought a protracted guerrilla war against the Aksumite occupation. Gurma's armies would twice confront Aifa directly, but they were ambushed and defeated both times. Understanding that he would struggle to confront Aifa outright, Gurma pursued a new strategy of waiting out his enemy. If he could cut off Aifa's access to supplies, his armies would soon starve out and surrender. However, like any foreign military occupation, the Aksumite occupation was very unpopular among the people of Himyar, so it wasn't especially difficult for Aifa and his army to find people willing to lend him supplies, arms, and intelligence. If Aifa could continue to receive supplies from Himyar's populace, Gurma's plan to starve him out would surely fail. Gurma surmised that the only way to cut off supplies to his enemy was now to turn his arms against the people of Himyar. His occupation became increasingly harsh. If he got word that a certain tribe or family was aiding the forces of Aifa, he would wage war on them as if they were an enemy of Aksum. Even a flimsy accusation of assisting the Himyarite king could see you, your family, and your whole village massacred. While this strategy was supposed to scare the populace into compliance, in reality it only fanned the flames of outrage and rebellion against the Himyarites. Over the next ten years of occupation, what little goodwill the Aksumite ever had among the tribes of Himyar had completely evaporated. Every city street, village, and farm was littered with pro-Aifa informants. Local militias formed to aid Aifa in his rebellion, swelling his numbers. And, if anyone was struggling to find supplies now, it was the Aksumites, as whenever they showed up to a village looking for food, the locals would hide everything they had. Aifa only had to fight against the Aksumite army, but Gurma had to fight the entire Himyarite nation. Ultimately, what would truly cement this occupation of Himyar as a failure was not a mistake on the battlefield or an occupational policy, but a catastrophic bungling of diplomacy. You see, the Aksumite invasion of Himyar had, obviously, not gone unnoticed by the other kings of southern Arabia. The king of Saba, in particular, was very concerned about what this invasion would imply about the balance of power in the region. If Aksum managed to permanently conquer and integrate Himyar, they would be an unchallenged power in the region, and would eventually conquer Saba next. Heck, King Datwinas of Aksum had basically publicly stated his desire to conquer Saba in the future, when he crowned himself king of Aksum, Himyar, and Saba. When you openly admit your desire to conquer someone, they, shockingly, become your enemy. However, the king of Saba knew that a war with Aksum would be costly, so he dispatched a diplomatic mission to Sawa, the city that served as the base of the Aksumite occupation. This mission aimed to negotiate an Aksumite withdrawal from Himyar in the hopes of avoiding war. 
However, when the mission arrived in Sawa, instead of being greeted by Gurma and his advisors, they were ushered into a jail cell. Gurma was understandably paranoid that these men were not truly ambassadors, but were instead pro-IFA spies. When word of this imprisonment returned to Sawa, it became clear that war was the only way to resolve their disputes. Gurma's decision to imprison these ambassadors would prove to be a massive mistake. Aksum could have maybe negotiated a way to hang on to some of its conquered territories and withdraw from the rest of Himyar. The costly guerrilla war against Ifa would have been ended, conflict with Saba would be averted, and Aksum could take some time to recover its overstretched military, and maybe even plan a future campaign in the region. If Gurma was under the impression that he could win a war against both the Himyarite rebels and against the army of Saba, he was vastly mistaken. The Aksumite forces, overextended and low on morale, were obliterated by the combined Sabaean-Himyarite force. The occupation of Himyar, which had always been fragile, was overthrown in a matter of weeks. However, somehow things were about to get even worse for Aksum. The city of Najran was one of Aksum's only loyal and stable possessions in Arabia, and had served as an important base of Aksumite power in the region. The populace of Najran was overwhelmingly pro-Aksumite, and ever since Gadara had conquered the region almost 50 years ago, it had remained an integral part of the Aksumite kingdom. But now that Aksumite's army was in shambles, Najran lay undefended. The Sabaeans and Himyarites quickly seized the city. In just two years of fighting, almost five decades of Aksumite campaigns in southern Arabia had been reversed. All of Aksum's Arabian possessions fell and the Aksumite kingdom was now entirely contained back to Africa. And the Aksumite kingdom had been entirely pushed back to the African continent. Datwinas' invasion of Himyar proved to be the single biggest military disaster in Aksum's history. The invasion resulted in Aksum spending vast sums of men and resources, and losing territory for their effort. The valuable frankincense orchards of southern Arabia would, for the foreseeable future, be out of Aksum's control. Aksum's campaigns to conquer southern Arabia and monopolize the frankincense trade had failed. Datwinus's war in Arabia seemed to have something of a traumatic effect on Aksumite leadership. Gurma, disinherited after his failures in the war, would never see the throne. The kings who succeeded Datwinus, reacting to the immense failures brought by these ventures in Arabia, retreated into military isolation. The first king to succeed him, Andubis took the throne around the year 270, and thoroughly shunned the idea of intervention in southern Arabia. Instead, he chose to focus his efforts on improving Aksum's internal economy. His reign was relatively obscure and conservative, with really only one detail about him striking any significance in the historical record. That detail is that he was the first king of Aksum to begin minting gold coins. In international trade, Currency conversion is one of the trickiest obstacles to overcome. If you're a merchant carrying two tons of frankincense on a boat that goes from Aksum to Egypt, it might prove challenging to negotiate a sale if you can't agree on a shared currency to use with your trading partner. Merchants in early Aksumite periods used coins made of brass, which had some, but limited, intrinsic value. Due to their low value, most merchants by the time of Datwinas's rule had ceased using these brass coins altogether, and instead used the currency of whatever people they were trading with. For example, they would use Roman coins when trading in Rome, Persian coins when trading in Persia, and Indian coins when trading in India. This system was, 
fine, but came with drawbacks. Using foreign currency always has the problem that its value fluctuates in a matter that you can't control. Rome's economy experiences a recession and severe inflation. Congratulations, all your Roman coins you've been stockpiling are completely worthless now. To get around this dependence on other states' currencies, King Endibus decided to make an investment in minting his own gold coins. He purchased substantial amounts of gold from Nubia, and from one of Oxum's client states on its Ethiopian frontier. These gold coins were intended not for use by everyday people, but rather for use by merchants in international trade. For this reason, the words on the coin were printed not in Gaez, but in Greek, the language of international trade. To project his power and prestige, Endibus ordered that an image of his face be pressed into each coin, additionally assuring that the value of these coins was backed up not only by the value of the gold used in them, but also by the strength of the Oxumite state. To ensure that these coins remained high in value, Endibus minted in high quality and in low volume. They served the intended purpose well. Oxumite coins are a good benchmark for archaeologists, because they help them determine just how far Oxumite trading influence reached at this time. They've been found in far-flung locations like China, the Philippines, India, southeastern Africa, the Middle East, and Western Europe. In fact, Oxumite coins seem to be something of an especially treasured currency due to their rarity and high quantity of gold used in their making. In Roman coins, for example, gold was often more than barely half of a coin's composition. While even during its lowest periods, Oxumite coins never contained less than 80% gold. In a reversal of fortunes, much like how Oxumite merchants were once forced to use the currencies of other states, now merchants from other kingdoms throughout East Africa and Arabia valued Oxumite coins above all others. If you'd like to see some pictures of the coins minted during Endubis's reign, you can see them on our blog linked in the episode description. Despite the severe military failings that had taken place so recently, the period that followed proved to be an era of economic prosperity for Oxum. Throughout the late 3rd and early 4th centuries, Oxumite rulers continued this policy of military isolationism and economic expansion. In Arabia, the Himyarites recovered from their long war with the Oxumites, and, over a gradual series of war, eventually took control of the entirety of southern Arabia. In previous eras, this aggressive expansion of the kingdom would have surely provoked Oxumite intervention. But the kings of Aksum were wary of reasserting themselves into a quagmire in Arabia, so they chose instead to simply let events play out. One Aksumite king, Usanas, even took this a step further. He proposed that, rather than fighting amongst each other, the kings of Aksum and Himyar would be better off if they cooperated as allies in economic matters. The Himyarites, who were surely equally relieved that they wouldn't have to fight another troublesome war with their African neighbors, gladly accepted. While Aksumite rulers would still claim the title of King of Himyar and Saba for a long time, this was merely a show. In reality, Aksum was a state that had been militarily defeated, and was now forced to accept that its ambitions in Arabia were over for the foreseeable future. In the year 350, the king of the Aksumites, Usanas, died. His son, Ezana, was a mere infant, far too young to take the throne, so rule instead passed to his wife Sophia. While still a baby now, though, Ezana would soon grow into a man who would shape Aksumite history like no other. The government, culture, military, and religion would all see massive reforms dictated by this great king. Join us next episode 
as Azana, the greatest king of Aksum, revolutionizes the Aksumite Empire, and even becomes the father of Ethiopian Christianity. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.